Well, good morning. I'm excited about sharing today's passage and the privilege of teaching you. And after that introduction, I'm not taking any questions this morning, but uh, just kidding. Um, Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 14, and I don't know what your method of Bible study is, but when, before I get into the particulars of a text, I always like to get an overview, and I don't expect you to read this, but this is the entire chapter, 28 verses. You notice immediately it's divided into four paragraphs, and as is characteristic of narrative literature, this passage is broken into movement. It begins in Iconium then goes to Lystra, Derby, and then Paul will actually finish his first missionary journey in this chapter. So if you check the commentaries, everyone breaks it around the geographical regions. If you go back and look, there's 10 verbs that form the main content of the passage. This passage is about sharing the gospel. Over 10 times, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel with their respective audience. So the focus of our study this morning is the importance of witness, the importance of sharing the gospel. Now, as there are three major regions, we're going to learn three major lessons. Because while the theme is the same, the text is going to teach us, first of all, be prepared to face division. People are not going to like to hear the gospel. So be prepared to encounter resistance, rejection, and disbelief. But when it happens, continue to boldly evangelize. I don't know about you, but this was the most convicting part of this morning's study. Because if I get rejected, if I get pushed back, I tend to shut down. Paul and Barnabas are the exact opposite. And they were an encouragement to me to remain faithful, to boldly witness and share my faith even in the face of resistance and opposition. The second lesson is be prepared to face distortion. That is, people who don't understand what Christianity stands for and don't understand the gospel. Be prepared to explain more clearly what the Christian faith really entails. And then the final lesson is when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, be prepared to mentor them and disciple them in the faith. Our job is not just to win the lost to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but to build them up in the faith and to lead them to maturity in Christ. So having looked at the road map, this morning we're going to start with Iconium, Acts 14, 1 through 7. And we begin in the first verse where we read, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. So Paul and Barnabas had traveled from Antioch to Iconium, a distance of about 90 miles, and as it was their custom, they go to the synagogue of the Jews, begin to proclaim Christ, and the text says that a large number, only time this phrase occurs in the book of Acts, of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Tremendous success. Notice among those who believe are both Jews and Greeks, probably proselytes, God-fearing proselytes who were in the synagogue at the time Paul taught. So, the passage opens with a very positive response to the gospel. But it doesn't take long before we are informed of a negative response. Notice in verse 2, 
But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So that notice that when we share the gospel, be prepared to face those who reject and resist. In this passage is the Jewish leaders who lead the resistance. The word translated disbelieve indicates that they actually were disobedient to God by rejecting the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he died in our place for our sins and rose again. But not only did they reject themselves, the text says that they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them. The text literally means at this point that they inspire and incite strong hatred by poisoning the minds of other people by creating suspicion concerning their motives, concerning their message, and distrust in Paul and Barnabas. So notice that immediately there are people who reject the gospel and who make it their job to create dissension in others. Now, interestingly enough, the next word in the text is therefore. And if this were written about me, I would probably say at this point, therefore, they left and went to Lystra. Uh, that if you get people who reject, if you get people who are resistant, you leave and move on. But notice the remarkable words of the text. Therefore, they spent a long time speaking boldly. Notice the response is not one of departure and giving up or giving in, but rather they spend what ended up being about five months in Iconium, sharing the gospel and continuing in the midst of the difficulty. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, I hope this becomes a challenge for all of us not to give up, not to give in, not to retreat in the face of opposition, but to remain faithful. Now, obviously, the key term is the, the verb speak boldly. What does it mean to speak boldly? If you do a word study on this Greek term, there are at least three elements. First of all, it means that they were open and honest. That in the charge that created suspicion, they were genuine in their motives, they were straightforward in their response, there was nothing shady about their dealing. Secondly, a confident person is one who believes in God and believes in his word. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in our ability to communicate. Our confidence is in our relationship with the Lord and the power of his word. And third, to speak boldly is to be courageous. They weren't unduly concerned about the response. As ambassadors of Christ, our job is to share the message and leave the response to God. So that for them, it didn't matter who was listening. They were able to minister without fear, without worry, and without anxiety. Notice that this basically unpacks the phrase in verse 1. They spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believe. How was it they spoke? They spoke openly, confident in God, without giving up and without giving in. Notice, too, that the text indicates that the source of their success was their reliance upon the Lord. 
Notice the text goes on to say, with reliance on the Lord. They didn't rely on their skill in argumentation. The source of their success was not their confidence in the literature that they were passing out or their marketing strategy that they had devised for targeting this particular group. They were utterly reliant upon the word of God and prayer. Now, mark carefully, skill in arguing is a good thing. Pamphlets, literature, videos are good things. But as men, we need to be careful that internally our confidence doesn't shift from the Lord and his word to the methods or the means or the movie or whatever it is we're using as the source of evangelism. We need to be totally reliant upon the word and prayer as we go about his work. Notice the content is defined as the word of his grace. If we want to be successful, the content of the gospel is that God in grace provides forgiveness of sin and eternal life because Jesus Christ, God's son, died in our place for our sins and rose again. It's that simple. It needs to be that clear. That's the heart of the message of the gospel. Notice that the text then goes on to say that the apostles were given the power by God to perform miracles to confirm their testimony. We're told that as they witness to Jews, it's important that miracles be given to the apostles to validate their authority and to validate their message. As a matter of fact, a little later in this passage, when we get to Lystra, we're going to see Paul perform a miracle. So, God gave the early church in the person of the apostles the ability to perform signs and wonders. Signs defines these as being miraculous acts that have theological significance. Wonders mean that they are unusual and inspire awe in the audience. Now, notice Sadly, that the resistance continues to build over that five-month period of time. So in verses 4 through 7, we read, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, that there they continued to preach the gospel. So, notice that first of all, we need to face our fear of rejection. This is preaching as much to me as sharing with you because I know there are often contexts where I could share the gospel or I don't just because I anticipate disbelief, rejection, and pushback. This passage is reminding us that we need to be courageous. We need to be confident in God and his word. We need to seize the open doors that God gives us and be diligent to, save our, to share our faith. Secondly, we live in a world of external pressure. Our world is one of tolerance, one of where um, 
we live and let live. We allow other people to express their views. And as a result, it weakens our enthusiasm for evangelism. As a matter of fact, some churches have relegated outreach to perhaps something like a blood drive or a food pantry. And again, hear me, those are good things. But people are not saved by food and clothes. They're saved by saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we do those things, we need to be very, very sure that the gospel message is being advanced in whatever approach you and I individually and our churches as a group engage in evangelism. As I said... Notice that the division in the synagogue now embraces the entire city. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. They learn of an attempt to uh, stone them. The word attempt indicates that this was an impulsive act. It wasn't a premeditated or planned uprising. But nevertheless, they saw it as severe, severe enough that they decided to leave hastily and move on to Lystra. So the text does say that there is a time when we need to move on, when we need to withdraw. Uh, when I was in ROTC, I had a prof who said the United States Army never retreats. It withdraws under enemy pressure. And as I thought about this passage, I think that's exactly what's happening here. The church of Jesus Christ never retreats. But there are times in our strategy when we need to read, uh, when we need to withdraw under enemy pressure. And Paul and Barnabas are going to be back in about four or five months. So not a retreat, but a strategic move to allow some of the animosity to calm down. Now, any questions or comments on this first glimpse of sharing the gospel? All right, so we move from being prepared to face division by continuing to evangelize to being prepared to face distortion. Sometimes people are not going to understand our faith. And as a result, we need to clarify what we believe. Paul and Barnabas now moved to Lystra. Lystra was a city uh, about 18 miles to the south. And culturally, you couldn't ask for a different evangelistic challenge. Lystra was known as being very rustic. The people were uneducated. They had their own native language. They were more Greek in culture than Roman in culture. Paul was used to going to the synagogue. Lystra didn't even have a synagogue. As a matter of fact, most of the people in Lystra were Gentiles. So this is going to provide a very different evangelistic challenge for Paul and Barnabas as they now go to a city that is very different in its cultural makeup than Iconium. Notice that in verse 8, we read, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, and had never walked. And again, 
I want to encourage you in your Bible study to notice the particulars of the text. Repetition is always significance. Luke doesn't want you to miss the fact that for all intents and purposes, this individual's condition was incurable. No strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, never walked. Three times he emphasized that the utter hopelessness in which this person found himself. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen he had faith to, made, uh, to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, time doesn't allow us to develop it, but there are a lot of interesting parallels between this healing and the healing that Peter performs in Acts chapter 3. But notice here that this lame individual is listening to Paul speak. And the text would seem to indicate that he came to faith on the basis of what he heard. The phrase um, should be probably translated that he had the faith necessary for the purpose of saving. So Paul is looking out over the audience and he discerns an individual who has savingly trusted in the gospel. In response, he performs a miracle on that individual, restoring his lameness completely to confirm the man's saving faith. So that sometimes in scripture, the miracle comes first and then the person believes. In this case, apparently the individual believes and so... Paul heals him to confirm the fact that he had accepted the gospel and received eternal life. Now, notice how badly the audience distorts what just happens. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and come down to us. Now, apparently, Paul and Barnabas don't know Lyconium, so they don't understand what is being said right now. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. You couldn't ask for a more dramatic lesson of entirely missing the point, okay? Um, for any of you who have taught, for any of you who have dealt with children and grandchildren, once in a while they walk away totally missing the point. And that's what this audience did. First of all, they attribute the miracle to false deities. Secondly, they call Barnabas Zeus and Hermes is, a, is the name given to Paul. Now, you're thinking to yourself, where did that come from? Well, if you had lived in Lystra, you would have known a legend that circulated that at one point, Zeus and Hermes came to the hill country dressed as mortals, disguised as mortals, and they went house to house through a thousand homes looking for a place to stay. Finally, an elderly couple invites them in, feeds them with their meager means, and the gods, out of appreciation, turn their meager home into a magnificent temple and make the husband a priest and his wife a priestess, 
And then out of anger, they destroy the thousand homes that had rejected them. Well, this audience was very familiar with the legend, and they weren't going to make the same mistake, okay? <laughs> if Zeus and Hermes are going to appear a second time, they're not going to make the mistake. They're going to worship, and here's a... a uh, ox with a woolen garland, which was the c pagan custom of the day for preparing an animal for sacrifice. They're ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as gods. Notice that when Paul and Barnabas do figure out what's going on, they are utterly appalled. We read in the text, beginning in verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you. Let's stop there. Notice that they are utterly repelled by their false conclusion. And as men sharpening each other, we need to have an equal disgust over falsehood in every form. Paul and Barnabas decidedly reject the label Zeus and Hermes. Notice that they remind their audience that they are not gods, but rather they are creatures just like them. And Paul will then give the second of three recorded messages in the book of Acts. Now, this is the shortest of the messages, and it's a remarkable one because he's giving the gospel to individuals who have no background in Judaism, no background in the Old Testament, who are more steeped in the knowledge of Greek mythology with Zeus being the chief god and Hermes being the god associated uh, with eloquent speech as the messengers of the god. And therefore, we read the entire message in these three verses. Notice we read, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So that notice that this provides an example of a message given to those who have no background in the Bible whatsoever. We're living in an increasingly secular society where people are increasingly unfamiliar with the message of the Bible in any form. So that notice there are several key elements in this message. First of all, the need for repentance. Repentance has two key elements, turning from falsehood to the truth from turning from vain things. The word has the connotation of false objects of trust, things that prove utterly worthless as objects of faith and trust, to a living God. So repentance, turning from false objects of confidence to the living and true God, who is here introduced as the living creator. So notice he goes all the way back to the beginning and emphasizes the fact that they need a relationship with the true God, the living God who created heaven and earth. Now, in addition to needing to repent and needing a relationship with the true God, they need revelation. 
truth about God. Notice in this section, he emphasizes the fact that up until the church age, no direct revelation was given to Gentiles in the Old Testament. But they did have what we call general revelation. God made himself known through creation so that his invisible attributes, to use the words of Romans 1, his divine power could be manifest to those Gentiles so that they are without excuse. Now, in studying this passage, not only is it laying out the gospel for those who have no background in the Bible, but there's also an apologetic element. According to inscriptions of the era, Zeus was believed to be the God who gave rain and good things. Notice that Paul is intentionally shifting their faith from a make-believe deity to the true and living God. Zeus is not the God who does these things, but rather the God of the Bible. Now, sadly, in verse 18, we read, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. So there seems to have been a fair amount of chaos in this situation that prevented Paul from continuing his sermon. But based on Paul's messages elsewhere in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, I believe that if time had permitted, he would have gone back to develop the need for revelation and develop the fact that now special revelation is available to Gentiles, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, had come to die in our place for our sins and rise again, and salvation is available to all men. I believe that his sermon is cut short on this particular occasion because of the um, chaos, if you will, of the moment. All right, tragically, the theme of resistance continues. Notice that we read in verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Jews from 90 miles away and 18 miles away successfully arrive in Lystra and sway the population of that city to actually stone Paul to death or what they believe to be death. So again, notice that opposition to the gospel is becoming more intense. And yet the text focuses on a truly miraculous element. They leave him believing to be dead, and the text majestically and simply states, he got up and entered the city. There is no explanation for that except the power of God. We need to grab hold of the fact that when we receive marks and scars, Paul's going to write this in Galatians about four or five months later and may very well be a reference to what happened to him here in Lystra, that when we are faithful, God delivers. God rescued Paul, delivering him, to the point that he was not only able to live through a stoning, he was able to get up, walk into the city, and then 
continue his missionary journey. Now, God's deliverance takes a variety of different forms. This is not a blanket guarantee that it's always going to be along these same lines. There have been many Christians who have died as martyrs for their faith. But in this particular instance, Paul bore scars, just like in a room like this. Some of you may have scars that you have accrued as a result of faithfulness to Christ. Scars that not only testify to your faithfulness, but to God's deliverance and your determination to continue to minister. Notice that Paul doesn't give up, he doesn't give in, but rather he continues to do what God had called him to do, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The same command, by the way, which you and I are under as issued by our Lord. Any comments, questions? Yeah. Sure, absolutely. No. Uh, some commentators, if you read them, will, will hold that Paul actually did die and was resurrected. There's nothing in the text to actually indicate that. Uh, so that it seems more to be a miraculous preservation of life than a raising him from the dead. Because, again, one wishes there was more particulars in the text as to what actually happened, but um, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that Paul actually died on this occasion. Matter of fact, the wording of the text, if you'll notice, it says supposing him to be dead. So if the text had said they they took him out dead, then it might open up that possibility. So when you ask a great question of the text like that, you always go back and look at the particulars. And because it says supposing, I think it indicates that in this case, he did not actually die, but that God miraculously restored his, his health. Great question. Yes, sir. You would have to. Uh, excellent point. Matter of fact, you're going to love one of the passages I get to do a little later on where Paul is really wrestling with the discouragement. It seems like this becomes a recurring theme, so much so that he begins to anticipate rejection to the point that he becomes genuinely discouraged. Um, and I think, as you said, there are two keys. One is prayer and the Word of God. You always grasp uh, the uh, relationship with the Lord and the reliability of His Word. But the other is the encouragement of brothers in Christ. Um, and that's why I think a meeting like this is so important, because some of you are going to be going through really hard times, and that's what iron sharpening iron is really all about. It's a brother throwing his arm around you and praying with you, uh, encouraging. I think Barnabas, Paul never did his missionary journeys alone. He always had a circle of individuals he traveled with because of the importance of that mutual support. Great observation. Yeah. Sure. Excellent, excellent point. Um, you know, Paul will say that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Um, 
And it's easy to sit here in the comfort of a room like this and affirm that, uh, but I can only imagine the absolute horror of actually going through what Paul went through on that particular occasion, especially when this crowd was intent on killing him. You can imagine that there were some pretty good-sized stones that were hurled at, at Paul on that pretty occasion. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And I think there's a lesson there too. Beware of popularity, okay? If things are going well in your witness and in your life, praise the Lord, but realize they can turn 180 degrees very, very quickly, okay? Uh, people are fickle. The world is very fickle in its commitment. Excellent. Excellent observation. Palm Sunday is a great illustration. The whole crowd is proclaiming him, King, you know, son of David, Hosanna. Week later, they're crying, crucify him. Now, unfortunately, we're getting out of time. Let me just... Um, touch on the next ones. And by the way, you'll learn quickly that I love the kind of interaction we're getting this morning, Saul. If nothing else, I hope this inspires you to finish reading chapter 14 on your own if we don't get through it all, because I'd rather you leave with things that you've enjoyed talking about and studying than necessarily we push through the entire passage. But in the next section, he goes to the most westerly or easterly of the cities. And here, amazingly, there's no indication that there was any resistance. Um, notice in uh, verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples returning to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, the other thing I wanted to draw attention to, and again, I hope this encourages your study of the text. Notice the shift in term to disciple. Now, in the book of Acts, disciples are individuals who have trusted the gospel and as a result are being grounded in their faith, which again is a reason you and I get together to study the word, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with the goal of being progressively transformed into the likeness of Christ. So Paul is equally committed to follow-up in keeping with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is twofold. Win the lost and then teach them everything I have commanded you. So how do we do that? And in the minute that remains, notice that first of all, they strengthened their devotion by encouraging them to continue in sound doctrine. Um, to endure suffering. And notice that Paul appoints elders in every city. He realizes that new believers need to be associated with a local church under the direction of spiritually qualified men so that 
as the mission shifts, we strengthen devotion to Christ by sound teaching, fully aware that we're going to suffer for our faith under godly men who can guide and direct the process. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's study as much as I had. I promise both Pastor David and uh, Tom Flynn that I'd be done right at 10 of, and this is it. So thank you again for the privilege. <laughs>